celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast, and welcome to November. I'm your host, David Roscoff, coming to you from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where it is like 75 degrees. It's like so beautiful and balmy. It's really kind of remarkable. And I'm joined today by the spectacularly great Rosa Brooks, who has also returned to Washington, D.C. from her retreat beneath some nuclear weapons-proof mountain in the far west. How are you, Rosa? I am. I'm very well, David. I got back at two in the morning last night, and uh, I'm. I like Washington D.C. Actually, I think we're going to talk about that a little bit. I think it's actually not such a bad place, especially now when it's seventy degrees and the leaves are all sorts of pretty colors. You know, the reality is we're moving back to Washington D.C. Good, as you should. That's good news. Well, thank you for saying so. As of December, the beginning, the beginning of December, and I'm not going to be more specific because this is a podcast and. Who knows what crazy is out there listening? They're all going to come to your housewarming party. Yeah, well, stranger things have happened. The other person, as you sort of heard there in the background on this podcast, is the spectacular, also spectacular, Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed? I'm enjoying enjoying Washington, which, uh, although it's not my native town, that, that of course, is in Alabama. It feels... <laughs> I feel like a Washington. Also the perfect place to launch a book. Oh, a book. Look, American Resistance by David Rothkopf. That's it. And well, we'll talk about that in a second. But before we do, have you ever like a really good book? Thank you. Have you ever been to Alabama? Which is one of the seven states I haven't visited. uh, And it it needs to be, you know, since it's my homeland, it needs to be rectified. Since it's your homeland. Since you're from there, you need to go there. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, my husband was actually born in Alabama. I sometimes tease him and ask him if he has a banjo on his knee or if he's going to Louisiana. Then he he doesn't actually think that's all that funny. Yeah, no, I can see how that might wear thin after a while. I don't but know. You're, 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 not, you're not his sister. You're not even his cousin and you're married. No, that's right. Correct. 
sorry i withdraw that really you should go to you should there are are actually a lot of very interesting people and things in alabama uh you should go to montgomery yeah do you you have relatives there do you go to alabama me yeah um no he doesn't have relatives there anymore but my daughter goes to college in tennessee and one very peculiar thing about tennessee is that it appears to be so close to Alabama and Georgia that any time you try to drive anywhere within Tennessee, you discover that you're somehow in Georgia and Alabama on your way, which is very confusing. You're driving in the highway, it says, welcome to Alabama. And then you says, welcome to Georgia. And you say, how did this just happen? I've been driving for 10 minutes. That's only one side of Tennessee, because I've been to Memphis and, you know, you turn left and you're in Mississippi. It's confusing. It's very confusing. You know, I knew somebody once who was from Arkansas. And she worked in Washington, and she said when she was growing up, if they wanted to to say to one of their friends in Arkansas that they were sophisticated, they would say, "I've been to Memphis." That that, you know, that was the that showed that they really did. Memphis work. is a is a is a den of iniquity. Memphis is full of sin and and corruption and sophistication, actually. Yeah, I've I've actually been to Memphis, and what I got there was barbecue. But there you go. I'd just like to withdraw my Alabama joke. Um, (laughs) What what, what I meant was Tasmania. I I don't know why I made that joke about Alabama. I apologize to all fellow Alabamans. (laughs) Your fellow Alabamians. Yeah. And and your fellow Tasmanian uh, devils. So we were going to talk about stuff. One of the things we were going to talk about was that book you held up. And, uh, you know, this was my my opportunity to grill you on the book and say, well, you know, how much have you read? And like, like, for example, Ed, did you like the parts about Rosa? I haven't got there yet. I'm on page 72 and enjoying it immensely. I mean, I only just received the book a day or two ago. And we should clarify for our listeners what book we're actually talking about. We are talking about David Rothkopf's new book. Ed, can you hold that up again? American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation. And, and as our listeners know, this is Deep State Radio. And we are, we are proud members of the deep state here. And David has written a book about our general collective awesomeness. And we want to talk about that. No, it's true. In fact, you know, both you and Corey figure in the book, Rip. I don't know if you've gotten to any of those parts or past the title page, but you know, the, the you know, I'm sorry, Ed, you, I, you just don't. I, I just. I'm the shadow media. I'm not the deep state. Well, that was the thing. No, I talked to Corey about civ mill relations because <laughs> she loves to talk about civ mill relations. And then I, I make a lot of reference. There's a chapter on elections, and I talk about Rosa's project, which you participated in, trying to project what was going to happen and then what was going on in the government at the same time to try to keep things from being a big disaster. But all my quotes with Rosa, like I, I interviewed 100 people, but all my quotes with Rosa are like from Arctic, like interviews she did with USA Today. They're, I didn't actually... I feel offended that I was not interviewed for this book. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so, like, I'm sorry. I well, should tell us about your book. I mean, I have started it. I am, I am well into it. 
and I, I'm really enjoying it. Um, <laughs> David's trying to look all modest and he's like, you actually read my book. It's not true. We're reading your book. Yeah. Really? It is great. But, but no, I think so since David's now being all modest and shy, which he very often is, as our listeners know, I will say, you know, what David is doing in this book is saying, hey, for all that people make fun of the so-called deep state and or have insane conspiracy theories that there exists this cabal of people who are somehow determined to destroy America for no obvious reason, except their sort of inherent meanness, that on the contrary, that the the vast, vast majority in positions, in civil service positions, in foreign service positions, in military positions, and many political appointees in the U.S. government are ordinary people trying their darndest to do a hard job and do it in a way that is good for the country. And that is incredibly important. Those people are really undervalued. And in times of turbulence and trouble, you know, they have very often played a really crucial role in keeping things from going completely off the rails. And I, I think that's true. And I think it's right. And we, we're not going to make fun of Alabama because people make fun of the deep state and we shouldn't make fun of either. That's, that's we could have done a deep state, deep south thing there. We could. <laughs> we could have. I mean, I, I, I strongly recommend this book from the 72 pages, from the quarter of it that I've the read. First, the first 72 pages. Yes, but I suspect our, our first rate. I suspect the first seventy-two pages are, are have form and presage the next hundred and eighty pages or, or so because it's exceptionally well written. Um, and as Rosa says, a very good illustration in this critical period of, of of American history, the Trump administration, and particularly the end of it, of how those people who are so easy when you're in DC to sort of ignore or, or just sort of walk past without noticing the, the people who you, who shuffle into rooms and are wearing maybe slightly ill-fitting government clothes and who oh, are, you know, now you're really, if, now they, you're if really, they were, if opposed, they were, as opposed to the finely tailored clothes of the financial times. Oh no, no, we, I'm much worse. I'm speaking with pride <laughs> as, as, as somebody with, who belongs to a sartorial tribe, but who, who drink Keurig coffee happily who are not glamorous, but who are actually the sinews of a functioning democracy. They're the ones that don't attract the attention, but ought yeah, to attract I, I the accolades. I'm extremely glamorous. But but you do you drink Keurig coffee? I know you're glamorous. Well, I'm you not very happy, you know. <laughs> I love the idea that you've introduced really? here of the Keurig coffee. how glamorous it is. <laughs> the Keurig coffee drinking deep state. That's yeah, what defines the, them. It does for me. It's the Washington drink, but without complaint, not, not happily, but without complaint, we drink our current coffee. Yeah, because uh, we are patriots, and we know that we we rise above petty considerations such as this is really crappy coffee. But that is what the American taxpayer chooses to give us, and so we accept it without complaint. And think tanks also follow that cue, and and they're right. not taxpayer funded. Uh, it's just the Washington drink. I, I mean, and there are people in Washington who, if they were found themselves in the extremely unlikely position of having a last meal on death row, would wash it down with a curry coffee. Uh, it's just that some people actually like it. But we're not here to talk about that. We're, uh, the point I was trying to make is that these are the people who hold government together. They are the ones who, who don't get the glamour, but who have the uh, the qualities 
that make government work and that keep the rule of law upheld. And your book, with characters who are well-known, but others, I suspect, less well-known, but from Fiona Hill to William Taylor to, to Mark Esper, the, the number of characters who stood up uh, to Trump and um, who had the temerity and the professionalism to do their jobs when they were under extraordinary pressure not to, to bend the law, to break the law, is something you bring out brilliantly. And, it, and it's brilliant to have a book dedicated to these characters. Well, first of all, nice of you to say that. And I can't wait to hear what you think when you read the other three quarters of the book. But the, I, I think that's right. That was one of the things that drew me to it. The other thing is, you know, I've written a bunch of books on process in government and the NSC and foreign policy process. And I was interested in how, at a time when you kind of had a rogue chief executive, the government would respond to that. And, you know, I try to let the people tell the story. I interviewed almost 100 people for it. And it's fascinating. And it's everybody from the ones you mentioned and Fauci and Kirsten Nielsen and so forth, down to lawyers that working in the Keurig suffused bowels of these, these various buildings. But it's, you know, it, it also reveals quite how crazy the Trump administration was, that it was much worse than you thought. And that if it weren't for these people, it would have turned out much worse for all of us. And the final point that I try to get at in the, in the book is that's why the deep state myth exists, because they're trying to discredit the deep state and get rid of it. And at the end of the Trump administration, they introduced this Schedule F thing, which was an idea that would allow them to fire up to 50,000 people. Well, why would they want to do that? It's not to save money. Every Republican administration actually bloats the deficit. The reason they want to do it is that these people say no. These people say there's a law, there's a constitution. You can't do it that way. And it makes it harder to be an authoritarian bully. And so you have to understand what role these people play in order to value them, in order to realize that getting rid of them is a big mistake. And, you know, it's also kind of a curative because since Ronald Reagan, we've been fed the line, the government is bad. Doesn't matter who's in these jobs, just let's get rid of them. And I believe that the big lie of Ronald Reagan, which was government is bad, leads you directly to the big lie of Donald Trump, because if government's bad, I don't believe what it says, and therefore I can negate it. Or it leads you to Herschel Walker. If government's bad, doesn't matter that you know, the guy's an idiot, because I don't really care what the job does. Or leads you to get rid of departments. You know, Ted Cruz yesterday, quote, tweeting, let's get rid of the IRS. Why? Because if government's bad, you can just get rid of these services. And Ron Johnson saying they'll get rid of Medicare. And so you know, the, the, I think we have to go back to square one and say public service matters. Public servants matter. Taking oath, being responsive to the Constitution matters, right? You're a professor of constitutional law, Rosa. Doesn't it matter? You know, as you know, I don't think there's anything mystical or magical about our Constitution. I think in all kinds of ways, our sort of religious dedication to a document that is is archaic and in many ways very ill-suited for current problems and profoundly anti-democratic in some ways. That being said, 
you know, I still think that taking that oath to the Constitution is a good thing and an important thing because the, the point is not when you take an oath to the Constitution saying, oh, I absolutely agree that forever and ever, you know, Rhode Island and North Dakota should have should have two senators. And even though California is a zillion times bigger and only gets two, what you're taking an oath to fundamentally is saying, I accept the rule of law. You know, I accept that my fundamental duty, even when I don't like the law, is to work within it, you know, and if you want to change it, you change it by the procedures that that have been enabled by our laws and you don't just break them, you know, and and that, that, that loyalty to something that is larger than a particular individual or a particular political party is sort of a sense that, hey, in America, there are some there's a set of constraints some of which we might think are great, some of which we might not like very much, but we all mutually agree with each other that we are going to work within that system to change it. We're not going to just ignore it. We're not going to blow it up. I, you know, I think that's something that is undervalued and under under recognized, certainly by the GOP, which has been quite happy to just you know toss it all out the window and do what they want to do. Uh, another part of this is and Ed, you've been here a long time observing this, but the U.S. government's the biggest organization in the world. It actually requires some expertise to manage it. I, and interestingly, I think the most undervalued quality that we look for in people in the government is management skill, the ability to understand how to actually make the government um, work. You know, we like somebody who can give a speech or we like somebody who, you know, went to a certain school or something like that. And it's a, it's, it's, it, it, you know, leads you to Donald Trump, who is the only president in American history who had no public service experience at all. And people are like, oh, that'll be a good thing. But it's like, I was reading somebody talking about something similar yesterday. It's like saying to, somebody who's never flown a plane. Well, we need a change of pace. You be the pilot for this flight. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think the other guardrails didn't work so well. The courts have been rigged. The Congress, if one party controls it, is partisan, doesn't do its job. And so at the end of the day, it's a lot of these people, many of whom are faceless, some of whom are political appointees, who are the ones that fell upon to say, nope, you can't do that. No, Mr. President, you can't launch, launch missiles at Mexico. No, Mr. President, it would be a bad idea to have a moat full of alligators. You know, uh, well, no, that would actually be a good idea, a moat full of alligators. I mean, everybody, everybody wants a moat full of alligators. Well, yeah. I mean, not around the U.S. border, but perhaps around their home. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, I just, it's it's kind of strange Ed, that we're in a in a place that values the work that's being done in the place so little. Yeah, it is. And I mean, if you think of the um, the Veeps and houses House of Cards, I mean, even to some degree the West Wing, although much less so. The idea of Washington as a place of really cynical, backstabbing, self serving. Well, and don't forget, don't forget in the loop and in the loop, Armando Iannucci, who gets it. Nobody writes better about government than Armando Iannucci. Between In the Loop and the death of Stalin, 
That's all you need to know. Don't go to the Kennedy School. Watch those two. Yeah, um, a little bit of um, a little bit of uh, London cynicism, I think, sort of uh, infuses his um, um, his, his worldview. But I mean, the, the um, caricature you get in the Veep, you know, is true of a lot of the Politico class in DC. You know, and I, th- I think if, if Politico, you mean the people who work at Politico? Yeah, Politico with small small p. Not with that. Well, it applies to some who work at the big P too, but <laughs> let's not get into that. Um, uh, there are plenty of fine people there who I count uh, amongst my good friends. But the unglamour, as, as we were saying earlier, the, the sort of curing inflated bladders of the unglamorous other, other systems called the civil service, the career people in government, the expertise that you have across extraordinary range of departments, which cover uh, things that peop- that touch people's lives that they're not aware of, and without which the private sector, which prides itself on getting ahead in spite of government, would not get ahead because there are public goods provided by the federal government and its resources and its data and its expertise is something that there is no upside to anybody mentioning there's certainly no sitcoms in in that hey the office but transported to the federal workplace that's true although i mean was was the office a well-functioning place i mean well you talk about scranton or slough here because one (laughs) is more cynical than the other well, I think Veep got that pretty well, actually. You know, I actually I actually think I, I think it's actually important to distinguish between two things. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which the federal government is completely dysfunctional. Yes. You know, there there's all kinds of inefficiency. There's all kind of waste. They're all kind of stupid bureaucratic things. Um, and to some extent, that is inevitable in an organization on the scale of the U.S. government, as David said, the largest organization in the world. You know, it's old, it's huge, and old, huge bureaucracies get screwed up in a million ways. That's it's not that's not wrong, but that's a different issue from therefore everything it does is stupid and pointless, or therefore all the money that goes to it is stupid and pointless, or therefore the people who work in it are stupid and pointless. I think I think we have a a clunky and inefficient federal bureaucracy within which we have some clunky and inefficient people. But we also have an extraordinary number of people who are heroically fighting the Korg coffee machines, uh, you know, fighting the inefficiencies and struggling to do what is best for the nation. So, I mean, and I say that only because I think the the argument, the defense of those public servants doesn't require us to say everything about the federal government is perfect. Of course it's not. You know, there are all sorts of ways in which it's all messed up and needs to be reformed and so forth. But that's but but that that is that we can believe that at the same time that we believe that the vast majority of the people within those organizations, you know, are doing their patriotic best to try to stand up for the core principles that make this country what it is. And by those core principles, I do not mean racism, et cetera, which I think is some, you know, the someone some of the Trumpy side I seem to have decided those should be our core principles. By those core principles, I mean a commitment to, you know liberty, justice, equality for all, the rule of law, et cetera. I think that's right. And I, you know, the it is a mixed bag. It is a mixed bag. And you know, Ed, among the people I wrote about here, some of them did the right thing from beginning to end. Some of them didn't. 
you know, some of them went along with, you know, bad ideas for too long. Some of the people who I didn't interview, I mean, you know, Bill Barr is the perfect example of somebody who was execrable for three years, but at the very end said, no, we can't have a coup. So I'm going to draw the line there. And, you know, it does pose. And I think one of the interesting things, you know, I think a lot of people read this for different reasons. But if you've ever been in the government, it poses a core question, which is, when do you serve? And when do you do better service by quitting? When, when do you do better service by speaking out? Do you keep things on track by staying in and staying quiet? Because this was the constant debate. Everybody I talked to, 100 people, everybody I talked to in the Trump administration knew very early on that it was going to be a shit show. And the constant discussion they were having in their own mind was, do I do more good by staying in or by speaking out and leaving? Now, some of them were ambitious and some of them had bad judgment. I'm not saying they all did it, but it, but it's a very... You know, it's a it's a, it's it's a very uh, interesting thing, and and it goes to sort of the ethics of being a public official. I, I, I think the UK has been go, you know gone through this for the past year as well. When do you stay in, and when when do you leave? I remember, um, and I'm sure you both do. Um, shortly before Trump took office, uh, Brent Scowcroft, who was obviously still alive then, but who was clearly the kind of public servant and and Republican, I guess, who most abhorred what Trump was, urged people to work for him and said, uh, look, he needs all the help he can get. And I remember thinking, huh, that's interesting, uh, because my instinct was to run, you should run a mile and not validate this, this man's administration. But, you know, having gone through some of the examples in your book, and Bill Barr is a very good one. I mean, he, you know, he did some really really dastardly unprincipled things on Trump's behalf. But I'm glad he was there in December 2020 because he wasn't prepared to cross that line in terms of conniving in a fake election um, scenario. And that is possibly a greater service than the dis- all the disservices he did, although that would be a massive mountain of disservice that he did. It, some of this stuff doesn't require expertise. I mean, you know, saying... Mr. President, firing a nuclear weapon into a hurricane is not going to break up the hurricane. It's something my daughter could have could have told him. But some, and there's a good example you give. It sounds uh, so promising, you know. It sounds so promising. What could go it, wrong? It, it sounds cinematic. I mean, yeah. it would certainly make for good TV. But uh, others, I mean, Mark Esper, you mentioned, who uh, became Secretary of Defense, managing because of... Trump's peak that he wanted to bring forward and dramatize the withdrawal of 10,000 troops from Germany. Mark Esper then, in in revenge for Angela Merkel not coming to the G7 summit in June 2020 during the pandemic, presumably fearing that she was going to be hosted by a man who doesn't wear a mask and injects bleach and whatever else. Then classic Trumpian style, as you tell in your book, um, David, because of peak, because he didn't like Merkel, announces the withdrawal of 10,000, and Esper turns it into the forward deployment of those 10,000 through understanding the system and working with generals and people on the ground in Europe 
to actually strengthen NATO's posture, uh, the precise opposite. And Trump, I guess, was too dumb to notice. Yeah, well, there's a lot of that, you know, in the book. I mean, a lot of it is people figuring out how do you work Trump. And some of the people who figured out how do you work Trump were pretty odious people. Bolton comes up a lot. Some of them were public servants who were really just dedicated to doing the right thing. And there's a story in the book about Trump wanting to pull troops out of Syria, and which ultimately triggered Mattis quitting because he felt it was abandoning our allies and our principles in Syria. And the people who stayed behind said, well, this will be a disaster. How do, we, how do we avoid it? And they said, well, you know, Trump has this crazy idea that we can sell the oil that they produce in the region. And so, you know, if we tell him that if we pull out the troops, we'll lose like, access to all the oil, he won't want to pull out the troops. And so they went in and did that. And, you know, they managed to, you know, keep him, you know, engaged enough that, you know, they, it was not as bad as they initially feared it would be. This is normally a point where we take a little bit of a break and we say, folks, you should go and become a member. And uh, this month, becoming a member is especially attractive because if you become a member this month, You'll also get this book signed for the price of your membership, which is an incredible bargain, really. And so November 2022 is the best month ever to become a member. And we hope you will do that. And if you are a member, stand by and we'll keep talking for a few more minutes. If you're not a member, go buy a membership, get a copy of the book. I'll sign it. And then you can listen to all of every episode to your heart's content. For those who are leaving now, bye-bye. For the rest of you, we'll be right back.